In this episode, Tammy Bird tells us about a novel inspired by the words of an old man on an island, and it's been a while since Justine has given a book a delightful recommendation. Well, not anymore. Welcome to Queer Writers of Crime, where we feature LGBTQ authors of mystery, suspense, and thriller fiction. Justine, what is something that you keep telling me over and over again? I keep telling you to pimp your own books. Yes, you do. So today I'm going to pimp my books, and it's actually an audiobook. A Body on the Hill, my second Mitchell Riley mystery, is now out on audiobook. People can go to Audible or they can go to Amazon and get it there. So actually, the first two books, A Body in a Bathhouse and A Body on the Hill, are both available. So if they haven't listened to either one, it's probably a good time to grab them both. Sounds wonderful. Sounds really great. Uh, You really want to delve into those. I will have links in the show notes to those. Great. People ought to listen. And, you know, if they prefer to read and they haven't actually read your books, they need to pick them up. I agree. Everybody should read it. Yes, yes. And and now I'm going to get a little bit spiritual on you. Okay. All right. We can deal with it. Each week I've been promoting or talking about a different podcast. And a lot of these are what we call podcast swaps, where if I like another podcast, I say, hey, I'd like to promote your show. And if they like mine, they'll say, I'll promote your show. But it's only if we like each other's show. So I turn down more shows than I will accept to do a recommendation for. Yes. This week is something totally different. Tyler, the host of this podcast, does not know that I'm going to mention his show. Okay. It's Have a Blessed Gay, and it's hosted by Tyler Martin, a spiritual comedy podcast. He's an actor, a singer, a comedian, an activist. He discusses social norms, current events, mental health, spirituality from an outcast perspective. I don't know about you. I don't consider myself, I certainly am not religious. Although you do attend church every Sunday, right? I do attend church, but it's a Unitarian church. And and we'll go in one day, talk about what a Unitarian church is. But for those that aren't familiar with it, I will tell you that probably half of our congregation are atheists. I know that sounds weird for a church, and I'll explain it one day. Okay. But Tyler's podcast, I met him on Instagram right when the show started, and we became Instagram buddies, and he's one of the first people that gave our show a review. When I first started listening to Have a Blessed Gay, I was hooked. And regardless of not being religious, I am very fascinated by religion for a lot of different reasons, and especially from a historical perspective. Right. Like, you know, back in Jesus's time, there was a new prophet like every other week because— I know, yeah. It was a bad time. People needed something to hold on to. So why, out of all the hundreds of prophets, did he become the big guy? Right. Tyler talks about some of those things. I'm going to look at my list here and give you some of the subjects he's covered. Um, My God is better than your God, which is about Christian privilege. Yeah. Uh, Catholicism and homosexuality. Plenty to say on that one. Uh, (laughs) And then my favorite show he has done is who created Christianity? Was it Jesus? Was it Paul? Was it Peter? Was it James? And again, Most historians believe Jesus did exist. Not all, but most do. But what is the historical perspective of how did the church get started? And he delves into that, and it's really interesting. Yes, yes, yes. They wandered throughout the land and preached his gospel. Yes. So for whatever reason, he had the charisma, and I guess people liked his message, and they carried it (laughs) on. So. <laughs> you know, you you're basically like dissing every Christian that believes that he was divine, but that's okay. We can keep going on this. <laughs> anyway, I'm getting off horse. I just w- really want to promote this podcast. You know, who killed Jesus is not is not really a, a good murder plot. <laughs> so anyway, I'll wrap it up. Okay. 
Have a blessed day. I'll have the link in the show notes, and I highly recommend it. Check it out. Tyler is funny, and he presents it all in a good manner. Okay. And so that's all I have to say about that. Is it my turn already? Yes. Golly. What do you have for us? I had The Postscript Murders by Ellie Griffiths. And Ellie Griffiths, uh, one of her books, not this one, but one of her books actually won an Edgar Award for not only Best First Novel, but actually for Best Book of the Year. And oh. that book was Stranger Diaries. But this is one of her books that hey, features... Whoa, whoa, whoa. I got... Whoa. I want to tell people. Oh, well, of course. The Edgar Award is the mystery equivalent to an Oscar. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah, sometimes we talk about that, and, and I generally assume people know what it is. But I'm glad you stepped in, and uh, for the new people, we've got that. All right, so she is an Edgar Award-winning author. And the main character in this book is a gay Sikh detective inspector in England. She's a lesbian. So she lives at home with her parents. She's 36 and lives with her parents. And she does not consider this a failure. She likes living with her parents better than living alone. They have a good relationship. They're friends. It, it was a very comforting start because, uh, you know, my daughter lives at home and has the same attitude. And uh, I'm glad to see that there's somebody else, at least in the fictional world, that, that uh, is the same. So let me tell you who recommended this book. Rich Stevens, one of our uh, great listeners, wrote to me and said, this is this is a terrific book. I, I think you should read it. You'll love it. And he was right. I read it and I loved it. We want every one of our listeners to be like Rich Stevens. He has recommended guests to me to have on the show, and he has recommended you to have books on the show. He's fantastic. Rich, we thank you. Yeah. Yeah, he's really wonderful. He's really terrific. And we hope his payment's in the mail. <laughs> okay, so let me just say the the main character I think is this detective inspector. Her name is Harbinger Cower, uh, and I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing her last name, but her first name is Harbinger. There are three other characters who are uh, narrative characters. So one of them is a former monk who runs a little coffee shop. And another is a gay man who is living in this, the, which I, I think it's the English equivalent of assisted living. And he was gay when a time when it was still illegal. And he is uh, generally surprised every time someone talks openly about being gay uh, because that was not his lived experience. And the fourth uh, person is a carer who goes into this assisted living facility. and she is bisexual. So it's a diverse group of people. The victim is Peggy Smith. Peggy Smith is a murder consultant. And let me tell you what a murder consultant does. She thinks up murders for authors. So she has a whole shelf full of books in which um, the authors credit her with helping with the plots. And without her, the book would not be possible. And what she comes up with is new and intriguing ways to kill people. And let me just say this, Brad. If I ever get an opportunity to work as a murder consultant, I am giving up this podcast gig. Well, don't do that then. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's, it really sounds like a great job. So one of the murders that she uh, thought up for the best-selling author is the method was poisoned incense. And I don't think I've ever actually read Poisoned Incense anywhere. And it's really too bad that wasn't a method of murder in this book because it does sound intriguing. But that was indeed the, the most original that I had ever heard. It actually sounds like something that would be obvious that I never even thought of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's why she was used by a lot of these authors. So she ends up dead. And... She was 90 years old, living in the same assisted living facility. Uh, the Kara Natalka shows up and finds her dead. And it just it just doesn't seem right. You know, you would think that, you know, 90-year-old woman dies sitting in her chair. And for some reason, it doesn't sit well. So nobody really wants to listen to her. 
the DA Harbinger doesn't, you know, it's like, okay, that's interesting. I'll take the report. And then when they go back in, the other three go back in to pick up a book as a memento, someone comes in fully masked, all in black, with a gun, points the gun at them, and then picks up one of the books and just leaves. You know, stealing an old book. It was a, you know, 1930s, barely read book, not very popular and doesn't sound very valuable, but it certainly adds to the theory that Peggy Smith was murdered. And so now D.I. Harbinger Cow gets involved. You get to know a lot about the authors for whom she consulted. They go to an author's convention in which the three authors all give speeches. The best-selling author talked about how he has a lot of books published, but then he's got a lot of books sitting that will never see the light of day. One of those books is called The Cricket Stump Murderers, and I am glad that it will never see the light of day because it can only pale in comparison to The Cricketer's Arms by Garrick Jones, in which a cricket stump was indeed the method of murder. It went up someone's ass. <laughs> That's right. I wonder if Garrick Jones used a murder consultant, and if not, maybe he'd hire me as a murder consultant. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. So the chapters all switch between the various voices, the, the four main characters. The three of them are going off to uh, investigate on their own, as most amateur detectives do. Harpenter does not like that they're investigating on their own, as most police people do, do in these books. Um, but she doesn't really have the resources to supplant them. The author's convention is, is going on in Scotland, and, and they're the only ones who can go, and she can't get to them to stop them. So, as you can imagine, danger ensues, and they all handle it well. Even Edwin, the 80-year-old the man, insisted he shows great bravery. Uh, Benedict, the former monk, who left the priesthood to get married. He's still a virgin, uh, and he's kind of living this kind of still cloistered life. He was cloistered as a monk, and then he's, you know, he has just this coffee shop. He comes into his own. It's just a marvelous book. All of the characters, you know, each of the characters has the same sort of development that if, you know, a book focused on just them, that's what you would expect. So she has these four main characters who hold their own in the plot and the plot is intricate and the whole thing is just delightful. It's getting a delightful recommendation from me. I think it's been a while since you did delightful. I was going through the list. Yeah. I haven't seen a delightful in a while. And, and, and this really is uh, one of those. There were times I laughed out loud and there were times I said, Oh, that's just, that's just adorable. Uh, and you would not think adorable would come up in a murder mystery, but some of those moments are adorable. And I love it when you have characters you just really love. When I did the forward for Love Raphael's book, I liked the character so much that he could have taken away the murder. And I was That's so right. engrossed. I was so engrossed in their lives, it would have been an interesting novel. The fact yes. that he added murder into it just was icing on the cake. Right. Yeah, he does very good. Speaking of him, we're bringing out his fourth book in the Nick Hoffman series, Little Miss Evil. Um, that's coming out in the next month or two. We also have the second Caitlin Reese book coming out in the next month or two. And on the shelves now are the Nikki Baker Long Goodbyes. And on the shelves also is my, Grant Michael's Dead as a Doornail. And uh, Long Goodbyes and Dead as a Doornail are, are the newest ones out there in those series. And we're releasing two more in our other series. i got to say, I'm missing out because I've been picking up my reading and I have yet to read a Nikki Baker novel. So. Oh, you will love it. You will love it. That's all I hear is how great. And Cheryl Head, didn't she say that, that Nikki was an inspiration? Yes. That says a lot right there. And Cheryl Head has written the forward to Long Goodbyes, which we're about to publish. So she shared her experience in the forward. People should pick it up. Okay. Well, before I let you go, I have two things I need to say that I should have said earlier. If we have guests that want to be on the show... We are already booked up till August. So if you have a show coming out in the fall, let me know. You have a book coming out in the fall. Yeah. If you have a book you want to promote or just you want to be on the show, let me know because we're filled to August. The other thing I want to say is 
the vast majority of our listeners listen to Apple Podcasts. Apple is making a bunch of changes right now, and it's an absolute mess. Oh, dear. So if you listen on Apple, please subscribe. If you subscribe to the show on Apple, you will get the show probably within 30 minutes of its release. If you don't subscribe, it can take as long as a day and a half for this show to appear in Apple Podcasts. Oh, my. That is wild. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Or use something else. Should be subscribing anyway. And that's all I had. Okay. We're good. All right. Well, I'll see you next week. We're sponsored by Record Tales, preserving our LGBTQ literary heritage one book at a time. Check them out at requeertales.com. Some people buy a fancy sports car or fly to a faraway land when they hit middle age. Author Tammy Bird started writing fiction with strong female protagonist. A literature professor by trade, she deemed it fitting to write about the kaleidoscopic prisms of human nature in her thriller suspense stories and novels. Be warned, her work is psychologically hard and gritty and real. It may not be palatable to everyone. But it is all that flows from the pen to paper, even when she tries to write something softer with a guaranteed happily ever after. Welcome to Queer Eyes of Crime, Tammy. Hi. I first wanted to tell you, job well done. You're a finalist in the Golden Crown Literary Award, the Goldie. Mm -hmm. So I just saw that the other day. <laughs> and that's for The Book of Promises, your second novel. Correct. That's for the second novel, yeah. Way to go on a second novel. Thank you. Thank you very much. You mentioned Happily Ever After. Can your readers expect a Happily Ever After? Uh, well, I guess it depends on how you define Happily Ever After. Because mm -hmm. if they're looking for a romance where two people get together and they find their sparks and they they move in together and everything is beautiful or whatever, no. They're not going to find that in my books. That's not the purpose. I write suspense thrillers. And so my happily ever afters are simply making it through to the other end of whatever is happening to the characters and coming out in one piece. Are there characters who love each other and their relationship develops within my novels? Yeah, absolutely. And I write strong female protagonists. And in both Sandman and The Book of Promises, the strong female protagonist also has a love interest, and it is a love that is developing and growing, but it's not the central focus of the book. How do I know I'm reading a Tammy Bird novel? Well, I've been told, anyway, that my that I that I have very strong, diverse characters within my work, and I am I was an academic. In, and still am in my other life. And my studies have all revolved around other with a capital O or marginalized characters. And so I don't think I can help but to bring that uh, learning and knowledge and uh, passion into my writing. And that's something that people, I didn't know people would pick up on that. I just thought I was just writing what people would write because people are all so different. But I guess because I've studied marginalization and I've studied othering and I've studied a lot of French uh, feminist work, it's it shows itself differently in my work, evidently. So uh, and I'm I'm excited about that. I'm I always want people I'm sad that they're able to pick out that it's my work because it's there. I wish that it was there in more work, but um, I'm also excited that people are able to see that that is super important to me to get the, to get the diversity in there and to make sure that it's done in a way that is supportive and true to the characters that are representing. Well, I would think if they know they're reading a Tammy Bird novel, that's a good thing. Yeah. They oh, made yeah. a connection. Yeah. Why thrillers and suspense? I don't really know the answer to that question, actually. I, I know that when I started, I, I, I guess because 
I've never read romance. I've never enjoyed romance. I didn't read it when I was younger, when I was growing up. It just has never interested me. My, the, the people that I read were like, were, you know, the Stephen Kings of when I was younger, those were the ones that were like Stephen King and, and Koontz and people like that. So I, I, I guess you kind of, it, what you write is a compilation of what you've brought with you from the beginning of your journey uh, um, on this earth. So for me, that's what I enjoyed reading. And that just was seemed a natural progression to me when I decided that I wanted to try my hand at this fiction thing. Well, it's exciting to have a suspense thriller novelist on the show. In the past, it's been mostly traditional mystery. And I think part of that was my fault. The name of the show used to be called Gay Mystery Podcast. And it's more than that. And I wanted that to reflect in the name, so I changed it to Queer Writers of Crime to make sure that it was more diverse and also to make sure I get people within those other crime genres. So hopefully by that name change, that will change that because I certainly would like to see more. Now, women have written mysteries over the years. I know it's been traditionally a male-dominated genre, as with most things. But in recent years, we've seen a large growth in women who write thriller novels. Why do you think in the broader picture that is? Well, I think that men dominated every field for so very long. And I don't, I, I think that a lot of people coming up to today, some of the, some of the younger generation don't really understand how male dominated, white male dominated all of the realms were when we were growing up. And, and because of that, I, I think again, it's, it's that, whatever it comes into you is kind of what goes out of you. And when you don't have any role models around you to show you that these are fields that you can go into, it's, it's almost like the, when you talk about STEM education, the science technology kind of education, it has always been super male dominated because when we were coming up or when I was coming up, the girls took home ec and the boys took, um, auto mechanics, and there there were no other options. You were a boy or you were a girl, and you took home ec or you took auto mechanics. You know, there there was nothing in between, and it took a long time for the for us to begin to question that and to feel comfortable saying, you know, this is bullshit, <laughs> basically, yeah. and that and we need to be able to do what we want to do too. And I hated home ec, and I didn't want to take home ec. And now people that are in school don't have, they, they can take home ec if they want to, no matter how they identify, or they don't have to take home ec if they don't want to, no matter how they identify. And I think that's making a difference. I think it's helping to change the way that, that we look at what we can and what we can't do. And so different areas are starting to, to diversify, which is beautiful. When I talked to you, I sent you an email because your most recent book is The Book of Promises. And I asked you if it was okay if I could read Sandman mm -hmm. instead. And yeah. you said, of course. And I want to thank you very much for allowing me that freedom. And I don't know if I told you why. Sandman takes place in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Correct. I love the Outer Banks. Me too. Absolutely love it. I love Ocracoke Island. So as soon as I saw that your novel takes place in the Outer Banks, I had to go for it. So I generally don't like, as I told you before we started, I don't get into the writing process so much. But because you chose the Outer Banks and the crime that's there, or, or I guess I can open up, they, they discover bodies, mm -hmm. as, yeah, and it was a serial it. killer. I'm sure that's right in the beginning, so I'm not giving away a spoiler. But where did you get that idea? Well... And and this is something when I go to readings and things, the readers find this find this very interesting. So I think it's a great question. Um, I actually got the idea while in the Outer Banks. My wife and I got married in October, and we went on our when the as soon as it was legal, we got married. We went to um, even though we'd been together for years and years before that, we went to a, an inn, Pamlico Inn, on the Sound. On, in Buxton, which is not too far from the ferry that you take over to Ogrecoke. Mm -hmm. And when we, while we were there, of course, it's October, so it's, 
it's cool. So there aren't a lot of people anywhere. A lot of things are closed. There's not much happening, which we loved. I don't know if you've ever been in the off season, but oh, it's yes. my favorite time to go. But so there's this little ice cream shop there and it was open and we thought, oh, that'd be good. We'll go get an ice cream. So we go into this little shop and there's one gentleman behind the counter, older gentleman, and he's talking in the, and he's, he's a, he's a lifer. He's, so he's always lived on the island and, and that's where he grew up. So he had that very heavy, um, oak, almost okra cokeish kind of accent, um, and we started talking to him, and I was just fascinated by the stories he was telling us. And I said to him, wow, it is just really quiet. Because the whole time we were there, no one else came in. I said, wow, it is just really quiet around here this time of year. We're going to have to come back this time more often because this is really cool. And he said, yeah, it's so quiet around here in the off season that you could bury a body and no one would ever know. And I was like, Phew. And that just stuck with me. It wasn't... It was no more and no less than that. And I that and so we went and we did our thing and we enjoyed ourselves. And I didn't even know that it was percolating in my brain. And when we got home, um, I just it just I just kept thinking about it. And I just sat down and just started writing it. And that's that's and then we went back two more times to do some additional research to to actually take the ferry over to Ocracoke because I have a piece in the in the novel that depends on the the ferry and so I thought well I need to know when it travels how it travels all the pieces and so we went back a couple of different times for that but that's where it came from was just that one sentence in an ice cream shop in Buxton well regarding okra coke I was excited when that started happening because I, I love that island so well for those that aren't familiar with the Outer Banks I'm gonna let you explain what what are the Outer Banks of North Carolina the Outer Banks are this just phenomenal little strip of sand. It is the, it, it, there's one road in and the same road out. There's only one way in and out. And it's across this huge bridge coming across part of the ocean where you have to come across. And the, you know, the road that you travel in on once you get into the Outer, once you're traveling down the Outer Banks is just a you know two-way road that goes all the way from one end of the islands and it's a series of islands and it's all the way from one end of the islands to the other end of the islands and then you can take ferry and go different you can take different ferries there's three or four different ferries down there that you can take to different islands but the strip of sand is only like a mile wide total mm -hmm. and so it's this just this very small strip of sand and um the beaches are fantastic because they're not especially when you get all the way down to Buxton and that end like the Ocracoke end of the Outer Banks it starts way up and you, and a lot of people go to Kill Devil Hills a lot of people have heard of that Kill Devil Hills mm -hmm. uh, that area that there's and there's humongous dunes there I don't know if you've ever been there or not but they yes, have, the I have. Biggest, huge dunes we tried to climb them when we were there one time we were like oh, we're too old for this but if you go down further into the Buxton area and there's the Rodanthe house, which is uh, part of a, a a novel. I don't remember who wrote who wrote it, but anyway, that house is there, and you can see that. And that's Rodanthe. It's one of the one of the islands that you that you can go on. But it's just this strip of sand, and there's really not a lot to do except just kind of hang out and um, reconnect. You know. Exactly, and. You brought up Kill Devil Hills, the Kitty Hawk era, which are probably the prime tourist area because people want to see where the Bright Brothers took off, which is an amazingly short distance that they actually flew. It's, not, it's laughable <laughs> when you see it. They're really hurting themselves if they don't head south and check the rest of the Outer Banks. Absolutely. I have so many fond memories of being there, and I live in Los Angeles now, so it's been ages. I have so many fond memories of being there and the beaches there that i got to tell you, the opening of the novel where they are finding these bodies is deliciously creepy. <laughs> and I loved it. So, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you did a great job. A great job. You, you gave me the willies. Good. Good. And we mentioned Ocracoke a few times. And as listeners know, it is the southernmost island of the Outer Banks. There's some smaller ones, but it's the one that's populated. And the nice little thing about Ocracoke Island is it's seven miles long, 
and most of that is national parkland. So you just have this little village built around a lagoon, and it really can't grow that much unless they go straight up. And that's the beauty of it. And I almost bought a sandwich shop there. Really? Oh, my gosh. I would love to do that. I know nothing about food industry whatsoever. And I just fell so much in love with the, with the village and started talking to this woman who just so happened to be selling her sandwich shop. And uh, she showed me that obviously she makes really good money in the summer. But she also showed me she does pretty well in the winter because of the people that fish. Right. And what stopped me was when I asked her, why are you moving? Her daughter was a teen, and she said, well, you know, my daughter's in the school, and it's it's first through 12th grade in one building, and I feel like she needs to see more. It's, it's not enough for her. And she really talked me out of purchasing that because I, when she said that, I thought, I'm a gay man in my 20s. What the hell am I going to do on this island? Mm-hmm. So. I would think it'd be a lovely place to live now that I have a husband. Maybe I'd think about it, but it wasn't at that time. Yeah, we've actually thought about um, moving to that area. But the problem for us is more about hurricane season. Mm -hmm. Because there is one way in and out. And if you're on Ocracoke, there's no way in and out if there's a storm. Because the ferries shut down. And so you're there. They tell if they tell you to evacuate or you're screwed. You're you evacuate or you're screwed because the ferries yeah. are going to shut down and you're done. Unless you are a fisherman and you have a boat, um, you're not going anywhere. You're going to be on that island, and it is super small. Like you said, the the area where the where people can actually live is is very small. And when a storm comes in, even on the islands, even across from Ocracoke where you know where the island is longer once the storm hits it it like destroys whole areas of their road and you Mm -hmm. you can't get in or out at that point and so we thought about that and we just decided ah, you know it just we would have to have a place inland where we knew we could could go anytime that we needed to be there and it just it got really complicated so we just decided we would just uh visit. Well, and like you said, there's strips of sand, really, when it comes down to it. So when a storm hits, the island can look totally different and has over many, many years. It used to be a a good place for pirates to hang out because it was a great place to hide with the shifting sands. I actually started to write uh, a novel that takes place in the Outer Banks. It's going to lead up to a question I'm going to ask for you. It's about half finished. It's a thriller. It's in my hard drive somewhere. But something that I thought about was, I was told a long time ago, if you're writing about New York City or write about Los Angeles, it's okay to include the police department because it's so huge that it could be anybody. Mm-hmm. The Outer Banks are Dare County. And every one of those towns, they don't have their own department. So their security is the Dare County Police Department. Mm-hmm which is only about 150 people total. Was there a discomfort level that you had that maybe you were hitting too close to home for some people or did that even cross your mind? Yeah, and it it did. And it actually did a little bit. Um, And I actually spoke to someone in the Dare County emergency department and talk to them about what would happen in an instance like this. What, you know, what would take place? Who would they reach out to? Who would be coming in? How would they be able to take care of something of that magnitude? And, um, and, and I recommend that to, you know, anyone who's, who's researching anything to make sure that you talk, actually talk to people. Don't just read about it, but talk to people about it because, um, I learned a lot about there's Matteo, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, Matteo, I think is how they say it, which is I think it's Matteo, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Matteo. They actually pull a lot from there as well. Um a, a lot of times that's where that's where they're coming from for the like the volunteer uh, people that volunteer and things like that are coming from that area. But it's um the the big thing is they're so tight knit mm-hmm. that I actually had to say that I would not talk about who talked to me in the in Dare County because if people got 
mad about what I wrote or didn't agree with what I wrote or thought it was horrible or whatever, and I was to say, well, I talked to so-and-so, they would all know that person. And and so that's kind of, that was kind of a weird thing to me that you know, I had never had anyone that I reached out to and said, you know, hey, can I talk to you about this thing that's going to happen in my story, whether that's a short story or an academic piece or, or a novel, um, I need to do my research on this. Can I, can I sit down or can I email you some questions or whatever for them to actually say to me, you can't, you know, you can't tell anybody that I'm the one that, that talked to you. So that was, that was a little bit, that was, was I, I was much more lazy than that. I was creating a town, a fictional town and was kind of trying to come up with a reason why that would be the only town in the outer banks that had its own police department uh, to, so I didn't have to deal with the sheriff's department, but I think your route was much better because it's much more the way it is. Yeah. And and we can, as writers, we can, we're writing a fictional novel. So not everything is going to be 100% correct. It's fiction, right? But you have to stay as true to the truth as you possibly can, because if you don't, whether it's fiction or not, people are going to call you out. With Sandman, uh, I generally don't like changes in point of view. I, I, I can't tell you why. And I, well, I don't like when I hear somebody say, well, I don't like Westerns. My feeling is I like Westerns if it's a well-written Western. Right. I generally don't like changes of point of view. That's the way you chose to write. And I love it. Thank you. I have to tell you that the the negative I saw in that was I so loved being in the point of view of the killer and enjoyed that so intensely that I was frustrated when it went back to the protagonist who is Katia or Katia. Mm-hmm. So that leads me right into this. Explain who Katia Billings, tell us who she is. She is a, she's a, a young up and coming uh, woman who has grown up on the Island with her father and her brother who has autism. Her mother has been killed in a car accident and she is, uh, she has been kind of the caregiver of the home. She's taken the place of her mother at a very young age. So that's who that has built a lot of who she is and, and given her that kind of caretaker background and because of that, she has gone into a career. She has made a career choice that is also uh, helping people. She becomes an EMT on the uh, as from for Dare County, and uh, that kind of caretaking persona is edged with edginess. Because she has had so much put on her that she's very standoff. She's lost her mother at a very young age. Her father works all the time. She doesn't get, she doesn't see him much. Her brother cannot, is not, is nonverbal. So there's not a great deal of communication in that respect for her. And because she is the caretaker and spends so much time doing that, she's very standoffish and not she doesn't easily open up. So she tries to give this kind of badass persona when it's really just a, a fear of loss for opening up. And that's who, that's who she is going into what she does. And she is, um, she is out as a lesbian and she has just recently had a very bad breakup with her first and only love. She's in her twenties. So she's, she's just broken up with her first, true love and uh she they've known each other since childhood and and so her mother it has kind of taken on a mothering role to Katia and uh, the series of events that take place then are are even more devastating to her because um of her number one caregiver personality and number two her connection to um the people um that are affected by what's happening on the island well, I want to get to the Book of Promises, but before I do that, I want to ask you a question. You talked about that Katia is out. Mm-hmm. And when I lived in North Carolina, which was decades ago, you had Greensboro, Raleigh, and Charlotte, which were, for the South, we'll say it was they were progressive cities. When you drove out 10 miles outside of town, it was like a time machine going back <laughs> 30 to 50 years. True that. And I know you... You're close to Raleigh, but you're 
in a small town. Yeah. Do you have a comfort level there or or we have a comfort level where we are. We are actually in a new um our home we had our home built like five years ago. It's a it's a new development. And so in it's called Wendell Falls. It's not actually in Wendell. It's it's outside of Wendell. It's kind of between Wendell and Raleigh, and it's a much more progressive area. Uh, so we're not not progressive. We're in North North Carolina, but it's much yeah. more progressive than uh, Wendell. So when we're home, we we have a, a comfort level with our community, within our community, and we have plenty here. We have a coffee shop, and we have you know, so we have these things where it's mostly just our community, and and so we feel comfortable within that. Um, outside of that, though, not always. I I teach at a very progressive community college. And I feel very comfortable there being who I am within those walls and with the people that I know. Uh, I, there are other places where we go where we are not at all comfortable. Um, but the Outer Banks, uh, believe it or not, are absolutely one of the places. Well, I mean, you, you probably will believe it because it's a, it's a place where all different types of people come all the time and their money mm-hmm. depends on them being kind and and gracious to everyone because that's how they make their living especially in the summer and so it is actually much easier to be out and be who you are in that area and i think just as we move forward in the world uh there are there are people coming up now um they just refuse to not be themselves. And I think it's forcing some of the others to, to start to be a little more open. Um, but we're not there yet by any stretch. So. Yeah, when I said those three cities were progressive, that's putting in perspective that they, they're in North Carolina. Yeah. Are you a North Carolina native? I am not. I'm a Colorado native. Okay, because that was going to be my, my next question. Your second book... The Book of Promises, we went 1,800 miles to Denver. Correct. And I was going to ask you why Denver, but now I think I have the answer. Yeah. Yeah. The house in the Book of Promises, so there's a, uh, there's a house that plays a huge part in the Book of Promises. Uh, it, it almost becomes its own character within the Book of Promises. And um, so I lived on the corner in a corner, in a, in a brick ranch on the corner, a middle-class kind of neighborhood in Denver when I was growing up. And the house next to me was a family that I did. They didn't have kids. We didn't really know them that well. But then the next house over was where my best friend lived. And in the Book of Promises, my house, the house I grew up in, actually becomes the second house, the one where we didn't know the people. Because my house is on the corner and I needed the house in the book to be between two houses. But it Mm -hmm. was as if you took my childhood living room and moved it in the house next door. And that became, that's the house that kind of takes on its own uh, life in the Book of Promises. And it's because uh, I wanted to highlight the kind of eclectic, nature of my father who I did my uh my father raised me uh very much like Katya my my father was my was the person who who protected me as a child um and he was he had no sense of design none like zero our couch was brown and white plaid we had a blue and kind of aqua chair that was in there. And there was, I mean, it was... Sounds lovely. It was horrible, horrible. I was, even as a child, I knew. I would go into my friends' houses and their furniture all matched and the curtains matched. The, I'm like, oh, what is going on in here? You can come to my house. <laughs> See? And so that was such a big part of um, who I was growing up that... I always knew that that living room had to be in a story somewhere, sometime, and uh, the Book of Promises is where that—that's—that's that's where that story started. Was in that living room. Was uh, that was that was the catalyst for for the beginnings of that story. Well, not only was the location different for the Book of Promises, it's also a young adult novel. 
Is that accurate? It wasn't really intended to be YA. The characters are younger, but it is it's it was written more as an adult novel uh, with younger characters. But it, okay. it has it has kind of been it's been it's been called YA, which is fine. I don't you know it doesn't matter to me. But the characters are. Uh, you know, just graduating high school and moving into college. So they're, you know, the 18 year range for the characters, but that just was, um, it wasn't intended to be YA, but I, I think a lot of people have placed it there just by age of the age of the characters. Well, to go to an extreme example, uh, Stephen King's it, it is not a young adult novel, but it's all younger. And it's all younger. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of young people in there. Yeah. So how is the Book of Promises different than Sandman? But it isn't a, there there is not uh in the Book of Promises there's not a serial killer. It's not a serial killer novel. Sandman is and Sandman is about getting in the head of the uh serial killer. That's part of the draw. That's part of that was part of what spoke to me when I was writing Sandman is I needed to be in his head. I needed people to see that who he was as a, as a person and how he got to where he was. And um, you did a damn good job at that. Thank you. Thank you very much. And then. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. And then, but in the book of promises, it is much more focused. It's also psychological. I'm, I'm a psychological thriller writer. I, that's, that's what I enjoy. And so for me, it's all about, what's in our head because in all of the academic research that I've done in all of my studies um, through my, you know, through my PhD, I have focused on how there, there isn't, you know, there, there's a lot of people see a binary, right? A, a, like a line between good and bad, black and white, uh, male and female, whatever. And my entire belief system is built on this continuum. No one is all uh, one or the other. It's this continuum. And we kind of slide around on that continuum throughout our life. And because of that, none of us are all good and none of us are all bad. And And that psychological being is fascinating to me. And so in all of my novels and in my short stories and everything that I write, uh, that that is focused that plays that plays a part so in sandman my focus was on um kind of uh, the juxtaposition of of that good and evil kind of thing within all of the characters that are playing that's playing out and in the book of promises it's it's very centered on this um idea of best friends and one friend taking advantage of the other one and not being um not being who we think that she is. We learn very quickly that she's that uh, that she's not who she pretends to be, but because her best friend loves her um, and has been in love with her unknowingly. And again, my characters in Sandman are out. You know, Katya and Zara, they're out. In the Book of Promises, they're not out. You know, they're, it, it, they're still trying to find themselves. They're part of a... Uh, they end up being um, one of them. Spencer ends up ends up um, coming out, but she doesn't. She's not there yet. All she knows is she loves her best friend, and she wouldn't want. She doesn't want to be with anybody but her, and she'll do anything for her. And that's that's not good. <laughs> and so that that's kind of the that's the central piece in the Book of Promises is that she would do anything for her best friend and does. Well, I like the good and evil or good and bad. You're saying that the lines are, are not clear cut. Life Correct. is not Star Wars or an old Western. It's, Correct. It's not always that easy. But you brought up Spencer Price. Uh, tell us about Spencer as well as the story. Well, Spencer is a young, um, she's a twin. She has a twin brother. And her and her twin brother live with their mom. They're, they are in a divorced household. Their father is alive. He's not. He's not dead, like in uh, the book of Prom, uh, in Sandman. But 
Um, he's not he's not a huge part of their life. Um, but when he was a part of their life, he would take them to the library all the time. He loved reading. Their mom loves reading. And so she grew up in the library and in in fictional worlds and in learning and in, in just being surrounded by that idea of words. And so she's always loved those kind of spaces. But when her father left, she was angry, as we often get when we're younger, when someone leaves us in, in however they leave us. She's angry. And so she's she has that anger inside her as well. And she hasn't been um, she hasn't been tending to herself as well as she should have. And and into her life comes uh, another young person and they become best friends. And the it's the relationship of these best friends. And this best friend is coming from another state and moving in next door to her. And so in this instance, or one house over from her, and they, as children, they they always say that they're going to buy the house in between the two of them, and they're going to live there forever. And it, and they create this book of promises where they write their promises to each other in this book. And as they get older, her promises remain very truthful and very um, appropriate for her age and for what they're doing while her best friend's promises begin to get darker and darker. And it's that, that's kind of where that's, that's what, that's what's threaded through the story is this book of promises and what they promise to one another and what happens if you break a promise. Well, that sounds great too. You have a dark gritty side to you, don't you? (laughs) I, I evidently I do. Yeah, my wife said she never knew. Now she's afraid to sleep with me. <laughs> she said, I've been sleeping with you for over 20 years, and suddenly I'm afraid. So I said, well, just don't make me mad. We'll be good. There you go. <laughs> the, book of, <laughs> the Book of Promises and Sandman, are they, they both standalones? The, well, Sandman was... Uh, I, I was originally asked to do a trilogy with Sandman. And so I am currently working on the second book called Protégé, because in Sandman, we have one character, Brent, who is very, he's a very big piece of the Sandman puzzle, but he gets away uh, before Sandman ends. And, He's just, you know, he he gets away. He didn't kill anyone or anything, but, you know, so he gets away. And and Protégé picks up, picks Brent up where he is now. And Brent has a need. He makes his money off of the pain of others without inflicting the pain on others himself because he's involved in the dark web. And so Brent needs somehow to still be able to make money. He needs someone or something or some, you know, he needs to still be able to do that. And so we pick up, the protege picks Brent up to figure out what he's going to do about that and how he's going to, um, how he's going to continue to keep his followers on the dark web. Now, does the point of view change in the Book of Promises? It does. Yes. I would think so. The way you, the way you described it, that doesn't surprise me. We are reaching the end of the show, so surprisingly, it always goes so fast. It is time for awkward questions authors get, and these questions are from dozens of authors that I asked, and they are either just difficult questions that we get every day, or some of them are just downright bizarre. Okay. So hold still, and I'm going to spin the wheel here. Okay. Your question is... Which of the books you've written is your favorite? Oh, Sandman, without a doubt. That's not even a hard one. That was that wasn't even a good spin. Um, <laughs> I, I think that I think that when you, for me anyway, I didn't go into writing until I was in my fifties. Fiction. I'd been writing in academia for years, but I had I'd always had this desire to write fiction, but I was always so involved with my research in um, 
so it wasn't until I was in my 50s and I decided I was going to go back to teaching. Uh, I went from being an, an associate VP to to teaching kind of a, you know, I kind of semi-retired, went back to teaching, whatever. And I decided it was time for me to do that. And I think because I had held that dream for so long and then I and then I was able to produce Sandman that um, it, it really isn't going to matter how many books I write. That one's always going to be always going to be my baby. The Firstborn. Mm-hmm. You and I are very similar. I, you published your first book at 55, am I correct? That's correct. Same age for me. Fantastic. I used to moderate a Facebook group that was specifically for new writers to help them. And it was so frequent. Every day, somebody will say something like, I'm 30 years old. Do you think I'm too old to write? Now, that would have been a question. That's a question for your wheel. <laughs> Answer that one. That is, and no, you're never too old to write. Come on. I I have a, I had a woman in one of my uh, women's literature courses. She was 82 years old going back to school because she wanted to learn about, and I taught French feminist literature, um, and she wanted to learn more about feminism that she didn't understand because she had come through the first wave, second wave, third wave, but she knew there was this other kind of feminism that she had never learned. She was in her 80s. Come on. If somebody in mm-hmm. their 80s can come back to school and learn and grow and um, apply that knowledge, no, you're never too old. Pick up that stinking pen, man. Write that story. I couldn't agree with you more. You uh, are a member of two different uh, societies, an active member. You're in the Sisters of Crime, and you're also in the Golden Crown Literary Society. Correct. How do you feel they have helped you? Well, the Golden Crown Literary Society, I actually, when I decided that I was going to write this novel, when I decided I was going to write Sandman, I wrote about... I don't know. I wrote about 2000 pages and and as happens frequently to people who want to write, you get you think you have oh, I have this wonderful story. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write it. You get about 2000 words in and you don't know where to go and you don't know what to do and you don't know anything about arcs or climaxes or resolutions. You just don't know anything about what you need to know to be able to write because if a writer does their job well, as a reader, you don't have to understand any of that. You just know you're reading a good story. But as the writer, you have to understand that there's a there's there's a formula. There's a, there are things that you have to put in there. And I didn't know that. And the Golden Crown Literary Society had a class. They still have a class. It's a it's a year long writing like seminar. And they pair you with a published author toward the end, and they will read what you write during the year in the academy. And well, you're in the academy for like six months, uh, writing and having people guest speakers and coming in and doing all these things. And then uh, at that time, you get your mentor, and then they start reading what you've written and giving giving you feedback. Well, that's how I wrote Sandman was in that was through that seminar. So they they actually gave me my 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 writer wings and then um as far as sisters in crime they have honed my so the golden crown literary society they focus a lot on you know mystery and uh romance and science fiction so there's not a lot of authors published authors that write what i write mm-hmm. in that realm Right. And so joining the Sisters in Crime has helped me to actually hone then my um, more crime based or they, they have every month they have guest speakers that come in. We just had one on poison, different types of poison. So someone who that's their job. They like study poison and they come mm-hmm. in and talk to you. And so I go to these things with them and and we have meetings. We used to pre-pandemic, we would meet once a month in a group and we would have guest speakers from all over the place, from a crime lab, from a whatever. And so that has just been a tremendous help in being able to figure out the more um, 
details, the, the, the little detail pieces. So the Golden Crown Literary Society helped me with the big piece. And then the Sisters of Crime helps me more with the smaller details in my particular um, area for writing. Well, they sound great in their own way. They are. They are fantastic. For the listeners, a reminder, the guest today is Tammy Bird. And her two novels, The Book of Promises, is the most recent novel that was released. That was in 2020, what month? 2020, it was in May, past May. May. Okay, so Mm -hmm. about a year ago. And then the other novel is Sandman. Tammy, it's been great to have you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Be sure to subscribe to Queer Writers of Crime wherever you hear our show. Tell a friend, too. Thank you for listening.